Teach me to dance. Will you? Dance? Did you say dance? Come on, my boy. Welcome to episode one of the Legends of Sports Athlon podcast. I'm here with your co-host David Bone. My name is Darren Strachan, and we are living in a strange new world. We've decided to put out a podcast, which we've been talking about for ages, but never ever got around to doing anything about it until now. Until now. Now, why a podcast about sports athlon? It's hard to get started, isn't it? All <laughs> uh, right. So, why are we doing a podcast, David? First of all, I can't uh, get past the fact that you you remind me of uh, Beaker from uh, Sesame Street with how your how your picture is on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> what my background why, picture? Why, why the podcast, Darren? Uh, yeah, good philosophical question, my friend. Um, we're in some. Um, Quite unusual times at the moment, aren't we? We definitely are. Living in the uh, in glorious London, it's just a, so strange to see the city, as I'm sure it is everywhere. But to see our great global city reduced to silence is just, uh, yeah, it's just pretty incredible, isn't it? Yeah, we've uh, obviously, you know, we are we are runners and uh, we are run coaches and. You know, uh, we have seen the kind of whole run community, uh, you know, it's clearly one of the major sort of uh, challenges, isn't it, in terms of uh, the directives around exercise in this coronavirus yeah. period, uh, whether, we should go, whether we should Absolutely. go out at all, how long we should run for. How long we should run for, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, and, pretty, and pretty much every... Every race, apart from our race, has been, <laughs> been cancelled. Um, so I think GUCR went the other day, didn't it? Yeah. Um, I know the Centurion, the early part of the Centurion season's all gone. The Crawley, Crawley races are gone. Um, I think yeah, we're up London to Marathon. We kind of up to June, are we? I think July races haven't been cancelled yet have they yeah i think centurion are still holding out for south downs way 100 okay, which i think is mid-june yeah um but i've not been not been keeping an eye on that um and, and even even our mighty the, the subject of the most most of the subject of the podcast the mighty sportathlon in september um yeah could also 
be at risk. Have you yeah. have you paid have you paid for your place yet? <laughs> That's a very personal subject to cover off in the podcast, buddy. Uh, as well, as, if you don't pay, if you don't pay for it, then it comes to me, right? So. <laughs> Is that what this podcast is all about? It's what this podcast is all about. Yeah. <laughs> Psychological mind games to get yourself Absolutely. Off, off the ballot. Yeah, intimidate you by speaking to so many brilliant runners that you're, you're going to think that you're not capable anymore. So this podcast is clearly around us <laughs> filling our idle, <laughs> idle, idle time with hopefully some um, quite juicy stuff around Spartathlon, Daz. So uh, can yeah, you indeed. tell us a bit more about what Spartathlon is? Yeah, I can. Well, everybody knows that we have uh, the marathon distance um, for, well, pretty much two reasons. So the story of the messenger, uh, as you call him, Greek Philip, but I will try to use his correct name, Phidippides. Pheidippides, uh, and the story of the marathon was that Pheidippides fought against the Persians in a huge battle in the Bay of Marathon, uh, and the Bay of Marathon is about twenty-five miles southeast, I think, of Athens. Uh-huh. And the Athenians won the battle uh, against pretty overwhelming odds. Actually, I think the the Persian force was something I don't know; it was way bigger than the, um, the numbers that the Athenians have. But the Athenians won, and Pheidippides ran back to Athens to proclaim news of victory. And the Greek word for victory is Nike. So he ran into the Senate and said, Nike, Nike, and promptly Give me died. some of your trainers. <laughs> Give me some of your trainers, exactly. Uh, and that's why we have the marathon distance. And obviously there was the thing about it being amended uh, to include, uh, I think, was it an extra mile so it could go past the Royal Box? The Queenie. The Queenie, so it could go past Queenie. Down yeah. the mile, yeah, that's correct. Down, yeah. down the mile. And that's why it became the modern distance of 26.2. Um, however, what's way less well-known, but I think way more astonishing is that before that battle, according to a Greek historian, Herodotus, Pheidippides was sent from Athens to Sparta uh, to ask the Spartans, they're obviously legendary warriors, to ask the Spartans for help against the Persians. And that distance is a a lot longer. So it's actually (laughs) about six marathons. So it's 150 miles, 153 miles, something like that. Um, And the legend has it that Philippides set out at sunrise on the first day and he arrived in Sparta at sunset on the second day, um, which means that he covered that distance in about 36 hours. He asked the Spartans for help. The Spartans said, we will help, but we're currently having a, basically a big party. So we can't come and help you right now. Um, so go back uh, to Athens and tell them that we'll come, but they're going to have to wait. So they, they turned they around. They basically told Greek Philip that they were, having, they were having one almighty knees up, yeah? 
they were having an almighty sporting shindig. I don't, I don't remember Ger- Gerard Butler selling Greek Philip just to hold fire whilst they had a mighty. I, I do wonder about some of these movies. Uh, yeah, indeed. He was there actually a couple of weeks ago. Gerard Butler was. Uh, he ran to uh, the feet of Leonidas carrying the Olympic flame. Podcast guest number one. Podcast Welcome. guest number one. <laughs> Gerard Butler. Currently, currently out of work, Gerard Butler. <laughs> he, must be, he must be desperate to come on the podcast, don't you think? Coming together nicely, my friend. Coming together nicely. Um, yeah, so the, uh, the Spartans turned Greek Philip round, sent him back to Athens. So he ran back again another 153 miles. Uh, on the way back, he uh, had a meeting with a nature god called Pan. Um, and Pan said, why, said, why do you Athenians ignore me? Um, subsequently, uh, came to their aid in the form of visions in the battle or something like that. Uh, and yeah, uh, Greek Philip fought in the battle, um, and then ran back and, and declared victory and then promptly dropped dead. And it's no wonder after running... 350 miles in the space of about four days and fighting in a battle. It's pretty impressive, right? Do you know what? Um, do you know what Greek Philip didn't have? A tunic. He. That's one thing. He also didn't have uh, Doctor Dora waiting there oh. to uh, nurse his feet. That would have perhaps been the thing that might have saved him. Indeed. We can explore that, Daz, in another later podcast. Dr. Dora would be a great guest. Absolutely. One, one person who can't appear on the podcast is, is the legend John Foden. Are you Indeed. able to share a little bit more info about how the actual race came about? So the, the modern sportsman. John Foden, yeah. The first thing I'd like to say about the race, actually, just to, as this little sidetrack, is that have you heard the only fools and horses explanation for the name of the race? <laughs> it is true. I, I, apparently, it's true. Yeah. So you know how on on the side of the van in Only Fools and Horses they've got uh, Peckham, Paris, and London. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. apparently, Spartathlon is Sparta, Athens, London. Uh, oh, and that's how they that's how they came up with it. Yeah. You know, have you heard that before? I think you just made it up, dude. But in these very very extreme conditions, you know, I can understand. How hallucinations you, do happen. You'll take anything you're given. I'll take anything, man. I love that, though. Mate, can we? Can we? Can we get? A, uh, that'd be a great support vehicle, wouldn't it? A, it would uh, be, wouldn't it? Yeah. What the uh, the yellow the yellow the yellow three wheel orbit with, uh, yeah. with with our crew in it? Yeah. Yeah. Would Jeff Would um, Jeff manage to fit his fridge in a three wheeler? I'm not. Yeah. Sure. Definitely. Um, anyway, yeah. So um, back to Mr. Foden. So John Foden. Uh, was an RAF officer. Um, so I think we like to claim him as a Brit, but actually I think he was an, I think he was an Aussie. Uh-huh. Um, uh, he was, yeah, so let's call him an Aussie. An Aussie in the British, <laughs> the British <laughs> RAF. We might need to fact check that one. Um, in about 1980, 1981 maybe, Mr. Foden um, and a couple of his buddies were in Athens to run the Athens Marathon. And I think for some reason they, they, they had quite a bit of time. They were hanging out in Athens for a couple of weeks. Um, 
And John Foden was a keen student of Greek history. And he was actually reading Herodotus, um, quite an old kind of, you know, obviously an old book about all Greek legends and myths and, uh, and whatnot. And he noticed so almost as a footnote that the story, the story of Greek Philip and the run from, uh, from Athens to Sparta. And being a runner and being a, a distance runner, uh, it caught his attention. And he became so intrigued by that story because he thought perhaps that can't be true, that, that a man can, could cover, or, or a woman, could cover that distance in that time. And he decided to test out the, the myth. Um, so what he did was he applied for something called an RAF expedition grant, uh, which probably doesn't exist these days. Uh, but he managed to cobble together um, a little bit of money, which was enough for a support vehicle um, and some supplies. And together with his, with his friends, I think there were four of them, weren't there? So it was John McCarthy. Yeah. John, John Schultons, yeah. and I can't remember the name of the fourth one. Um, we, need, we need to check that. Uh, they they tested out the um, the uh, the legends. So they set up from Athens at, at sunrise, um, and they they ran an their best approximation of what they thought the route might be. Um, but it was actually quite hard for them to even route find in those days they were obviously they had to use paper maps um no sort of gps or smartphones um but they made an approximation of the routes uh, and they managed it pretty much so i think one of them did it in about 35 hours and yeah, john shelton's 34 hours and th uh, 30 minutes i'm always fascinated how how the three of them actually didn't finish together John Foden, 37, 37, and yeah. roughly John McCarthy, 39 hours. 39 hours, and one, and one, of, them, one of them didn't make it, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's quite remarkable. I mean, I, I guess they decided that they would each take their own stabs at it, right? Um, yeah. To, to see, if, see if one of them could do it. Um, but, but it is a fantastic story, and there's some great pictures of, of them just running kind of pretty much alone just on these tiny Greek country roads you know, in the middle of nowhere, really. Um, did, did, they, did they kiss the feet of King Lenny? I don't know. There is a picture of them at the statue. I don't know if yeah. they actually did the foot kissing thing. Where, where did the foot kissing thing? I mean, this is a huge That's part, a good question. Of why it's such a globally, you know, well-loved yeah. race is this iconic feeling of this long finish straight isn't there the, yeah. the crowds either side and just how the you know the local you know the town of sparta really take the race to their hearts don't they and they kind of it feels like you know everyone's kind of wearing traditional greek outfits and you get towards the uh statue you know if you're there before the 36 hours and yeah yeah absolutely. Kiss, kiss the feet of king leonardus the statue you know it's Absolutely. Quite see why it's most people's uh, social media profile picture, can't you? It's such an amazing <laughs> picture. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Um, yeah, so yeah, I think the, the year after, or maybe two years after the, those guys did, did that expedition, the, um, the race organizing 
committee, which is known as the, the International Spartathlon Association, uh, was formed and it made it, made it into uh, an ultra marathon, which is put on every year at the end of September. And I think it, it, was, it was pretty reasonably niche for, for quite a while. And I, th- I think actually it was invite only for quite a long time, but it's fairly kind of exploded in, in popularity probably in the last maybe 10 to 15 years. Um, and it's almost like a sort of unofficial world championship of, of ultra road running, really, isn't it? I mean, it's completely amateur um, in terms of uh, sort of, there's no prize money or anything like that, but it's, it's become, um, yeah, it's become a real global, global event. And um, one that's, <laughs> one that's become very sort of aspirational for, for a lot of, a lot of distance runners. Yeah, yeah. I think, and, and to return back to the original question, uh, Daz, of you know why why we you know love Spartathlon, and uh, you know some of the you know things that we'll we'll definitely look to explore in the podcast is uh, is this kind of true global nature, isn't it? The fact that you know when we were chatting to uh, uh, Bob Hearn, you know just you know whether you're from you know Europe. Australia you know kind of like how the kind of the Japanese and you know the kind of Scandinavians the Americans it's you know it's, it's a well-loved um, classic ultra marathon from from runners all around the world and you know many people yeah. you know start their ultra marathon you know kind of journey by kind of reading about this particular race and sort of see it as something yeah. that kind of in a in a certain amount of years they kind of want to work up to, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting how the country thing becomes such a big deal at, at Sportathlon, right? Where, you know, people will wear, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of sort of flags and a lot of kind of national pride, I guess, go, going on. Um, but it's done in a way that doesn't feel, it doesn't feel competitive or sort of, jingoistic yeah. or anything from that point of view it feels very kind of a real sense of togetherness that um all the runners and all the people who are out supporting kind of you know sharing that sort of single single goal for that weekend which is to to get to get to the finish um i think that's what makes it quite a special thing is that there's so many different sort of cultures and personalities and types of people coming together and okay you know it's, it's just a foot race doesn't, doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, but there is some special vibe about it. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things, as you mentioned, that's one of the things we, we love. And I think the other thing is just the, the characters that we, that we meet um, that, you know, oh, yes. on that particular weekend. And meet, some... meet, meet sounds like very friendly, Daz, as if like, you know, we would, we would never stalk. Do you mean stalk <laughs> or subsequently stalk <laughs> on, online? Yeah. This is a stalking podcast where we. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, some, some, Go on. Some, some of the greats have um, competed in Spartathlon. I mean, no greater than the legend himself, Yanis, uh, who, for those perhaps a bit less familiar with kind of ultra marathon uh, world, I mean, this, this guy, uh, this Greek guy, is, you know, even today holds some of the, you know, the, the kind of the most astounding records, doesn't he, Dads? Uh, which, yeah. which, you know, people yet 
haven't even come close to like I said perhaps uh you know none more so than the um the 24 hour record yeah yeah abso- absolutely I mean I think he holds does he hold every single ultra record from 24 hours and up yeah, I think so, uh, yeah, he does. He does, yeah. Yeah, he's just, just incredible. How many, how many? So, so in terms of being the kind of Spartathlon legend, there's a kind of classic myth story to um, to Yanis Kouris and, and Spartathlon. There is. What the, you remember that one, Daz? Yeah, indeed. Um, so I think he first ran it really. I'm not sure if it was the first race or the second race, but he. Um, I think he ran it in something like 22 hours and there was some controversy because the organizers didn't believe it was possible for anybody to run it that fast. And I think in that first time he won it, they didn't, they didn't have a lead, a lead car or a lead motorbike. So the next time he ran it, they, they did. Uh, they, they, they obviously they tracked him all the way and I think he ran it, uh, he ran it even faster. There was also another year where he uh, he won again, um, got to the finish and uh, turned around and ran back again, ran back to Athens. <laughs> so double. Covered, uh, the double, double Spartathlon. Um, I, I think we can we can aim to get on a, a guest or two to talk about the double, which um, yeah seems to be becoming more of a thing these days. But yeah, I mean we've got. Uh, there's obviously lots of people we have to stock and uh, invite onto the podcast. But for episode one, this episode, um, we have managed to, to, to get a fantastic guest. None less than Sir, Sir Bob. Sir Bob Hearn, on, honorary Brit. Honorary Brit, Bob Hearn. Sorry, Americans. We're, uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're having them. Um, Dear friend, Bobby. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Bob has run Spartathlon three times, and he, um, yeah, he's he's done fantastically well. Um, he's, uh, I think, the first time he ran it was sort of twenty nine hours, uh, twenty nine and a half hours, and he subsequently improved his times down to twenty seven hours, and he, he finishes in the in the top the top twenty, um, which uh, I don't know to some people may not may not sound like that that high an achievement. But when you look at the quality of the field that runs this race, that's that's a staggering achievement. It really is. So yeah, we're honoured to have him on as our as our first guest, and hopefully the first of many. David, absolutely, buddy. Yeah, yeah very excited about uh, our next uh, set of guests. But uh, yeah, couldn't have been happier to have started uh, with Bob. So yeah, it was a it was a great chat. Yeah, joining us today from Portolo Valley, California. Uh, we have Bob Hearn. Uh, Bob's a, a legend in the U.S. distance running scene. Uh, he's known for his um, amazing level of preparation and performances in 24-hour and six-day races and also big international ultras like uh, Spartathlon. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Bob Hearn. Well, thank you very much. I'm uh, really honored you guys chose me for your, your first podcast. So thank you. Excellent. Thanks, Bob. Um, so, Bob, maybe you could start, um, like, give us a bit of background to your uh, to your running career. Um, like were you were you always a, a runner, and how did how did you get into uh, into distance running? No, I um, I didn't start running until I was thirty eight. Really, I um, I tried abortively to start running uh, when I was in college to impress my my girlfriend, uh, now wife, 
who's a runner, but it, it didn't stick. And, um, <laughs> you know, over the years I would, I would try to run for, for, um, health and fitness, but it was just too boring to do that. Then we moved to Vancouver and, uh, I guess 2004 is when I started running and I got talked into a big team entry for a local 10 K and I'd never run that far before. But, um, I, I discovered that if I had a goal, a race to train for, and especially, you know, I had to pull my weight on this team. Um, I found a training plan online and it was like, Oh, now running is actually working towards a goal other than just, you know, eating your vegetables or something, which is, you know, what running for health sort of felt like. And, uh, I was hooked. And so that went well. Then I did a half and I did a marathon. And for a few years, it was all about marathons. I, I joined the marathon maniacs and um, would run, you know, 20 or so marathons a year. Oh, wow. And because um, in the in Marathon Maniacs, you have this this star system. I thought, you know, once I joined, you know, I had these friends who had these Marathon Maniacs singlets. And so how do you get one of those? Oh, you have to run, you know, like two marathons, two weeks apart or something. Well, that sounds really hard, but maybe I could do that just once. And then I'd be in the, in the cool kids club. <laughs> uh, but then you're in and you and you and you see um, this list of, uh, who has how many stars. And so okay. I was in at the one star level, but it goes up to 10 stars. Oh, wow. So, so it's like a sort of virtual hall of fame type club or. Yeah, exactly. The insane asylum is what they, what they called it. And, um, <laughs> so I wanted to get more stars and that meant, you know, running lots more marathons closer together. And so the first time I ran, um, two marathons in one weekend, um, a friend of mine said, Hey, you know, if you can do that, you can do a 50 miler. You know, that's, that's easier than two marathons in two days. Come do this, uh, this, uh, white river 50 with me. And, um, that was, uh, totally kicked my ass. It was, uh, you know, like 8,000 feet of gain or something. And I'm used to running flattish marathons. Um, but eventually I shifted over to doing more ultras. It was another few years till I did my first hundred. Um, and that gradually I realized that the longer the race, the better I am at it. I was never going to be a great marathoner. But um, once I did my, I did my first 24 hour um, uh, Christmas 2014 and, uh, or New Year's just after that. And that's where I auto qualified for Spartathlon. And I realized that, wow, you know, I'm just, it's a totally different world in this zone. It's not, it's not just all about pure fitness and ability there's so many other things that come into it that you can that you can use what is it bob i I guess it's quite interesting because you know we all know don't we that there's been kind of a real um resurgence in in the ultra marathon you know the last few years becoming phenomenally popular and starting to kind of get some tv attention and uh, amazing sponsorship i mean i guess i guess you know you've you've been there since the, you know, uh, you know, like the, as you said, 2008 when you did the uh, uh, you know first 50 miler. You know, what 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 was sort of happening in the, you know, those early years of 2011 to 2014? I mean, were, were you aware of a U.S. ultra marathon scene and you know any yeah. other big events at that time? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, it didn't seem to me like it was just getting started then. It seemed it yeah. seemed pretty big. It's much bigger now. You know, the thing then was, you know, like if you're doing marathons, you want to go to Boston. If you're doing ultras, you want to go to Western States, at least if you're in the U.S. And so I got sucked in into that and um, I got lucky and got into Western States my first try. Oh, wow. But um, 
it, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly it had a different feel than it does now, and I'm sure it has a different feel in the U.S. than it does elsewhere. So in the U.S., it, ultras are still very much trail dominated. Um, it's all, you know, trail racing is almost synonymous with ultra running in, in the U.S. And I know that's not true elsewhere. Um, and I, I think that hasn't really changed. Um, but, you know, if you look at the numbers for Western states, certainly, you know, the, there's just this continued exponential growth in the number of, of applicants. Um, and some of it, I think, is, you know, there's been a cultural shift in running, how it used to be, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it would take a serious runner to do a marathon. If you're running a marathon, you're a serious runner by, by definition. And now, of course, that's not true. There are people who go out and, you know, essentially walk the whole thing. And that's great. You know, that's getting them out. It's getting them more active. It's being, making it more participatory, make it a, a more participatory sport. Um, but, you know, there's a saying, 100 is the new marathon, right? And now, you know, 200 is the new 100 and so forth. There's got to be a place for the people to move who want to be, you know, a little bit more exclusive or a little bit more extreme or whatever. And I hate that. I hate that word extreme. And I don't like exclusive either. But um, there is, you know, this nice feel that the ultra community um, is more of a sort of a comfortable scene, a comfortable size than like the marathoning world. You go to Boston and there's 40,000 people there. You go to Western States and there's 300 people there or, you know, Spartathlon, 300, 400 people. It's just a more comfortable um, size, a more comfortable vibe. Um, the ultra community just seems a lot more, um, there's a lot more camaraderie because there's a lot more sense of, um, you know, you know, something you run something like Spartathlon, that's not just a race, that's, that's like a lifetime. And, we, you know, people that you meet at races like Spartathlon, you know, you've, you've shared your life together in a way that you don't just somebody you ran into at Boston or something. It uh, gives the whole sport a very different feel. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And that, that's, um, Actually, sorry, before I ask you about 2015, your, your first time at Spartathlon, just about that 24-hour, the, the, the qualifier, yeah. did, did, you, did you go into that 24-hour with the, with the intention of trying to run the, the Spartathlon AQ, or were you just trying to see how you performed on 24? Well, I, um, so I had this friend who was on the, the U.S. 24-hour team in 2010, and that's when I first became aware of 24-hour, really. And all of us on, you know, um, uh, running ahead, the online forum I was on, I'm still on, um, were just glued to the, the screen watching the updates. And it was just incredible the things he was doing. I said, oh, man, someday I'd really love to do that. And it took me a few years before I could try it. But um, I went into it with having done a few 12 hours and had done reasonably well. And I thought it was a long shot chance I might be able to make the U.S. team, which that year it would have taken 145 miles. Um, which now wouldn't remotely put you on the team. But um, I ran 139 and a half the first time, and I went into it with a, with a long shot plan to make the team. Um, and I had some advice from my, from my friend, uh, Mike Kenza, who was in the 2010 team, which helped quite a lot. Um, but um, yeah, I, in the back of my mind was Spartathlon as well, because uh, I knew that that would be a Spartathlon auto qualifier but the primary thing was to take a take a long shot at taking, making the 24-hour team another team yeah sure you hear about the spartathlon bob we're always kind of keen to know how how the legend makes its way <laughs> yeah i um i don't remember when the first I, I i ran across it online sometime you know 2011 2012 i don't know 
And I thought, well, that's just utterly ridiculous because I looked at it and, you know, 153 mile race with a 36 hour cutoff. And, uh, you know, I'm going to compare that to Western states where, you know, it's a hundred mile race. And if you do that in 24 hours, you get the silver buckle and most people don't do that. And here you have to do that and keep that pace for another, you know, faster than that pace for another 50 miles. It's just, that's ridiculous. It's way out of my league. Um, but then it was around the time of that 20, that first 24 hour race that um, a friend of mine on that running forum uh, was very keen on Spartathlon and, and, uh, and, um, you know, promoted it to me and sent me some race reports and things. And I thought, Oh, well, you know, those little bit, I mean, it's a road race. It's not a trail race like Western States, which is why, you know, there's no way you would do 153 miles in a trail race in that amount of time. But the road race is a different thing. And uh, after doing the 24 hour, I could, I could see, yeah, that's, that's feasible. It'll still be, you know, the biggest thing I've ever done, but it looks, you know, like something that, you know, I have to try um, because the whole, everything about the race just appealed to me, the history and the, the organization and the, um, you know, I read when, once I kind of got into reading those race reports, I read every race report I could find. I probably read 50 or 60 race reports and the ones that weren't in English, you know, I'd run through Google translate. And, um, so yeah, it just, the race, once I realized that it was something that might be feasible, it just completely grabbed me. So that's brilliant. And, um, Actually, that, that leads on nicely to the the uh, the next question that, I, that I'd written about. So, yeah, 2015, you um you, you had a you had a really great run there, and I think you'd you'd set a yeah. target of well, two targets. One was finish, and the other one was you thought you might be able to break 30 hours if if things went yeah. well, and that, and that yeah. turned out to to be to be the case. You, you, you yeah. had a great performance, and so yeah, can you maybe describe yeah. like, how did how did the race measure up in terms of how you thought it would be like um and how it, how it actually was uh it's funny i mean i um it, it certainly lived up to my expectations uh it you know it, it seemed a little bit greedy to try to go out and run 30 hours when you know at the time the finish rate was about a third or 40 percent or something like that and i'm going in for my first time obviously the goal should be to finish but you know i just had this solid 24 hour and i thought that my strength kind of matched this this format and so i wanted to leave the chance you know leave myself the chance to run a sub 30 because i sort of thought i thought of sub 30 as like a benchmark you know for like a really good spartathlon um and uh i did you know i did my homework i built this super detailed pace plan which is you know almost ridiculous overkill but um it worked out well for me and you know in a race that long there's always going to be a lot of things that come up that you don't expect especially your first time doing it and uh, that that certainly happened to me i had a really rough time about halfway through um, but managed to to claw away claw my way back um and um was able to hang on and come in come in a half hour half hour under that and so i was i was absolutely thrilled um and uh Isn't yeah. Uh-huh. Um, Bob, do you um do you remember any of the um other runners uh from 2015 that you um finished a few seconds in front of our friend uh, Pablo, Pablo Barnes? I certainly do. <laughs> I remember <laughs> passing Pablo um in the last few miles. <laughs> and 
Yeah, one of the things I love about Spartathlon is the finish. So the last 13 miles are downhill. And that that really um, works very well with my, you know, my, my preference for starting slow and, and finishing strong because, you know, I have enough left in the tank to, to run those last 13 miles fast. And I, I, I must have passed 20 people or so in that, in that space. And uh, Pablo was the last person I passed. And um, I was a little bit worried as I was coming up behind him because he looked like he was running pretty strong. Um, and he sees me going by and he says, hey, is there anyone behind you? No, no one for quite a ways, you know, and I thought, oh, good. That means he's not going to chase me. It sounded like, oh, he wants to hang on to this, to this spot here rather than, you know, but uh, as it turns out, um, so I might've slacked off a little bit after that. I don't know. Cause there weren't any, wasn't anybody else to, to pass, but, and that was, you know, maybe three miles from the finish. But then as it happened, um, he almost caught me. I wasn't looking behind me, but you know, I got there and I, I, touched Leonidas foot and I was there posing for photos, but um, the Pablo came up while I was still posing for photos and climbed up on Leonidas and he was, he was very close. Uh, that was, that was fun. Yeah. You, you, uh, you took uh, a nice 40 minutes out of uh, Radek, dear Mr. Bruner, which uh, probably would have been the oh, last, really? would have been the last year you'd have been able to do that. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I wasn't aware of that. Huh. No, I didn't know that either. Was it was that Radek's uh, debut as well? I suspect so because uh, he's been a pretty much a top top five finisher ever since, hasn't he? So, he's been, he's been yeah. second ever since, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite good. Yeah, poor guy. Yeah, that's yeah. yours to keep forever. That is, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and actually, um, just go, to go back to that pacing plan, Bob, and the and the downhill section. Had you? Had you factored in being able to run quite that fast in the pace plan, or is that no. where you got that extra no. half hour first time? Yeah, pretty much it is. Um, you know, if you if you look at the finishing times, like last um, last time I ran in twenty eighteen, um, um, blanking on his name, Japanese guy who who won oh, Ishikawa. Um, Ishikawa. Um, he ran the last, the last uh, 13 miles and I think an hour 55. And so if you do it in two hours ish, that's, that's a pretty good time. Um, but my first time I did it in, uh, I'm going to say an hour 43, an hour 44 or something like that. Whoa. And yeah, no, of course I didn't plan on that. And I'm, I don't necessarily think now that that's smart pacing. It, it sure seemed like it at the time. Cause it's like, wow, I'm making up all these places and it feels great to have that energy left to be passing people. But, if I'm honest, maybe I left myself a little too much in the tank. You don't, you don't see the winners doing that because they've spent more in advance of that. And, you know, they're the ones who are winning. Um, sure. But no, I, for my first pace plan, what I did is I said, okay, well, if I want to finish in, in 30 hours, or I figured, you know, best case possible is 29 and a half hours. Um, so I want to make a pace plan that I know that I'm not going to be pushing any faster than, um, then I just basically I looked at the at the um, cutoffs and I scaled them down, not not uniformly because you know the cutoffs really change around 50 miles. 50 miles is, is you know you got to be there nine and a half hours, and a lot of people try to build up a big, big cushion by that. And I didn't want to do that, so I figured I'm going to be at, at um, 50 miles at I think 8:45 or something like that was my plan. And then the rest of the time I simply looked at the cutoffs, checkpoint by checkpoint, and scaled them all down uniformly until 
the finish was 29 and a half hours. And that was um, a reasonable first cut. Um, I, you know, now I could do much better than that because I have the experience of actually having run that three times mm -hmm. and I have the data for each checkpoint and how long I spent on each checkpoint and so forth. Um, but that was a good starting point. And, you know, those times assume that you're going to be beat up at the end of the race and running slowly or walking for a lot of that last part. And I wasn't. So, um, yeah, that's where I made up because I had gone off course that first year and lost 15 minutes. And I was really furious with myself because I thought that was going to cost me my 30 hours. But um, I made up so much time that I didn't expect on, on that last 13 miles. Yeah. Yeah. And when you've been back uh, the subsequent uh, two times in, I think, 16 and, and 18. So you've improved by, I think, two and a half hours, right? Um, over that um, first yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you came 16th um, in six, 16 and 18. So, that, I mean, that's a that's a big improvement over a, over a time that's already fantastic. Yeah. So did yeah. you did you get did you get a bit more aggressive then early on those years? Yeah. Um, I mean, my overall pacing plan, I didn't change in terms of starting fast. I just basically scaled everything faster. Um, I had. I had more experience, you know, I did a lot of things wrong the first time that I, that I could fix. Um, also, I think 2015 was maybe a little hotter a year than 2016 and certainly 2018 was it the Medicaid, was. it was a cool year. Um, yeah. Also, you know, in 2015, that was the first time I had ever run that far. And since then I've done, I've run that far many times and I've run a ton of 24 hours and just have a lot more experience at, at that type of distance um, and being out there for that long. So it's a combination of things. I'm, a, you know, I, I'm doing more training miles now, and um, but experience is is a big part of it. Just just on the uh, on the training front, do you are you a high mileage kind of uh, high weekly mileage kind of trainer? Uh, not not super high. I'll, for a race, you know, like a 24 hours Spartathlon, I'll peak around 110, 115 miles a week, but I won't hold that for very long. And typically, it's more in the 70, 80 range. Okay, that's uh, that's encouraging. Um, yeah, <laughs> so. I know you guys. You know, like like Andre Nana likes to at least for his first couple times at Spartathlon, he would be doing two hundred mile weeks, and I, I just can't do that. I mean, I for one thing, I prioritize sleep. You know, I think it's hugely important to get enough sleep, and I would never. You know, I'm fortunate that I don't I don't have a day job. Um, I you know I do some consulting, but I set my own hours. And so I don't have to get up at 4 a.m. to do my 20 milers or whatever. And I, I wouldn't, you know, if I had that kind of situation, because for me, uh, the sleep is more valuable because sleep is when you, you know, you, you rebuild that tissue and reap the rewards of the training and sacrificing sleep to me is just sacrificing your training. Yeah, no, absolutely. What, what's, um, so, you know, Bob, looking at your, as Darren mentioned, I mean, your 2018 Spartathlon, where you were just a few uh, seconds behind your fellow teammates. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you, I mean, it would have been quite sweet to have been the first first American. Yep. That's clearly, yep. one one thing. I mean, going back, you know, hopefully all three of us this year Spartathlon. I mean, how, how big can you dream, Bob? I mean, how much more time can you? take off your personal best and you know what what else can you achieve at in a race like spot Athlon? 
Well, when I went back in 2016, my my stretch goal was was 27 hours and or top 10. Yeah. And um, I ran 27 and a half, which you know, at two hour PR, I was happy with that. I was 16th, but um, and then so I had the same goal in 2018, and I ran 27:01, so I missed up 27 by one minute, and missed being first American by like 12 seconds. Um, yeah. But again, I was 16th because the field keep getting keeps getting stronger as well. You know, the qualifiers keep getting tougher, and that means that um, it'll be interesting this time because they changed the auto qualifier, auto qualifier criteria, so there'll be fewer, fewer people with autos. But for the yeah. last several years, you know, the field has been, getting, has been getting stronger and faster, and I'm getting older, so to get top 10, um, I don't know. But, I, you know, I still have, you know, now I've run it three times, and that gives me even more experience to draw on, and uh, I'm still learning things. And uh, I'll have to see how the rest of the year goes. Um, but I, at this point, I would like to say I would like to aim for 26. And I think that would probably be a real stretch. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to mix things up and change my pacing plan up and not just scale it faster. I may start a little faster and, and not rely so much on the big kick at the finish. Um, I got some other things uh, to try differently with training and nutrition. And uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot shoot bigger this time, and we'll see what happens. What does um, what does faster mean, um, Bob? I think most uh, of our listeners are sort of familiar with the infamous cutoffs for Spartathlon, yeah. and, and they often talk about the uh, the marathons, don't they? You know, what time you do your first marathon to the first major checkpoint, and yeah. what time you're sort of hitting. Um, Corinth, I mean, you know, what, what sort of uh, first two marathon times roughly would you look to do if you were trying to go a bit faster this year? To be honest, I don't, I don't have those times in my head. I couldn't tell you the times that I, that I have hit the marathon or, or Corinth without looking it up. Yeah. Um, and I don't think, you know, when, when I did it the first time, you know, I, I planned out my pace plan like I had said. Um, I looked at what other people had had done it in on ultra sign up who were who were sort of similar to me and sort of gauge my expectations. Um, and then I said, okay, well, then I, if I want to run 30 hours, then I better hit these these places about around these times. But I didn't think, you know, well, I know that I can run an easy marathon the next time and an easy 50 miles the next time. I saw other people planning out their races by they're looking at the at the map and saying, okay, this stretch I should be able to run this pace, and this stretch I'd be able to run this pace. And that, that logic didn't work for me. So I don't really even think of it in terms of the time to the marathon or time to 50 miles. I guess all I mean is that, um, you know, so far I've had this slow start strategy um, trying to get into, you know, for me, the race really starts um, around mile 120 after the Alea Tagia checkpoint. When you have that, you have that long, like five mile climb after Alea Tagia. And then for me is where the race starts because you get these, these long rollers that you can run fast on the flats and the downhills. And then you get that, that long uh, 13 miles to the finish. Um, I want to get to that point in great shape to race. Um, but that means that I'm starting so slow that I'm walking, um, you know, in the, in the first miles now and then. And so I'm going to try to change that up because I think um, I've learned some things well, maybe not learn some things, maybe unlearn some things, or maybe broaden my attitude about pacing strategies over the last year or so of my experience at six day in particular. Um, and and my, my sort of ideas about 
you know, what optimal pacing looks like. And, and, and also watching people like Camille Heron, um, you know, run a 24 hour world record twice um, with very positive splits. And, you know, people do, people run, have all different pacing strategies, but I guess I'm, I'm sort of broadening my attitude about what good pacing might look like. And I'm a little bit more willing than I was to start, to start faster. And what that looks like in numbers, you know, for marathon and 50 miles plus, I, I haven't worked out yet. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, just um, just on the mental side of things, Bob. Um, I think in your 2018 race report, you talked quite a lot about having your having your. Uh, I think. Well, you use this word, so maybe it's okay for me to use it. Uh, you use the word you use the word ego. Um, I, I think sometimes the word yeah. ego ego can be maybe a sort yeah. of a negative negative connotation. And I know you don't you don't mean yeah. it like that, and I don't mean it like that. Um, but you talk about um, that how you know that people, no one but you cares objectively about about the finish time or the finish yeah. position. But in order for yeah. you to achieve your goals, you have to you have to care. You have to. You have to bring that ego element into into yeah. battle with you, as it were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested to ask: like, is is there another conversation that goes on mentally? As in, is there a part of you that that, that, that doesn't that doesn't care and kind of wants you to that kind of says, "Oh, why why are you doing this to yourself again? Sure. I don't want this pain to happen to me again." Of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and how how do you because I get that quite a lot. So yeah, how how do you how do you deal with that side of things? Well, I mean, a big part of that is you know setting big goals and mentally you know making them important to me and thinking about how wonderful it's going to be if I can run twenty seven hours or be first American or be top ten or or whatever. Even though it doesn't really matter, you know, if I set that self, if I set something like that as important to me you know, if I didn't have a number there, you know, and a pace chart that says uh, these are the splits I have to run to hit that number, it would just be way too easy to slack off and run whatever was comfortable. Um, a lot of it also is, is just um, accumulation of experience and the knowledge that in any race like this, there's going to be times when I just want to quit and I don't want to be there and I don't ever want to run again. And, um, it's, you know, you just have to learn that that is a normal part of the experience and that you can't just react to it and that you just have to wait it out and that it'll change and you'll be in a different place. And that's just something that comes, you know, I'm sure you've, you've learned that as well over your, your ultra careers. It just comes with experience. Yeah. Um, I, I got to admit, it's, it's something that uh, I'm not finding any easier. As, as time goes well, on it's, it's not it's not any easier but you know the more experience you have for me i find the more experience i have not quitting the easier it is because i can tell myself i'm not a quitter you know yeah. when, when you're i mean like i'll give you an example when i i just um was fortunate to get in a good 100 mile race just before uh, the, the virus thing happened and i hit an age group american record um but yeah, we saw that. Con- con- congrats on that. So it's uh, amazing. That was four, 1440, 1444, uh, 1444, I think. Yeah, speedy. Um, but I'll tell you, about halfway through, I was ready to drop, and I was just thinking, this is too hard. And you think if it's too hard now, and I still have to run another 50 miles, there's no way that I'm going to be able to do that. 
but you know experience told me that you just you just can't react to that by saying screw it you just you just can't do that because um all the all that you can control is what you're doing right now you know and if I know that I'm not a quitter, then I know that I'm not going to just give up if it gets too hard. I'll, I'm going to give up if, if you know, something tells me I have to give up. But, you know, so, so instead of quitting, I just, you know, I, I backed the pace off just a little bit to let myself cool off. Um, I changed up all the things that I could change up. I took an Advil. Um, I, I um, started drinking more. Um, I just changed all the little technical things that I could. And then, you know, in a little while I felt great and I felt great for another few hours and the last few hours were hard, but then, you know, the finish is in sight. So that's, that's different. And it's, it's the same sort of thing. You just, you have to have enough, um, you know, willingness to just focus on the now and control what you can control now and let the future take care of itself and have faith that you'll, you know, if you're not a quitter, you're not going to quit in the future. So all you Absolutely. have to control is now. And yeah. So there's kind of an element of if you you sort of gravitate towards your towards the goal that you've set. So by by setting an aggressive goal, it makes you more likely to achieve that goal. Um, it sounds like yeah, I, I think that's that's certainly. I know it's a mistake I've made at Spartathlon, um, and I think it's a mistake that a lot of runners make because because the finish itself is so valuable, and you have 36 hours to potentially achieve that. If you focus on the 36 hours, then guess what? You're going to gravitate towards 36 hours. And then it puts the whole thing at, at risk. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And it's a lot harder to be out there for 36 hours than it is for 27 hours, um, certainly. Yeah. Okay. Sub-30 this year then, David. Bring yeah. it on. Yeah. We, we're going to form a little um, triangle with, like, lasers behind Bob. Yeah. doesn't know this <laughs> <laughs> Uh, brilliant. And uh, this, this just to continue on that, um, the sort of mind aspect of things. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you, you did a six-day race, Bob, last year, I think, in yeah. in, an, in six days in the dome. It was in, in an ice uh-huh. rink, was it? Yeah. I yeah. mean, the mental the mental aspects of that must just be, yeah. I just can't even comprehend what you went through. Yeah. 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 That was being indoors uh, for six days was the hardest part of it for, for me. Um, I was planning to run EMU in Hungary this year instead, even though, you know, you have weather and you don't have a totally flat surface and so forth. Nonetheless, um, being indoors with, with constant indoor lighting for six days was just uh, more than I really wanted to sign on for again. <laughs> oh my God. So presumably you had to go off to, to, to sleep. You'd have to go off, off course into some kind of darkened area or something to, yeah, there were, I mean, at that race, there were some people who had caught set up by the side of the track and you could do that, but it was loud and it was bright. And there were, if you wanted to go elsewhere in the building, there were some quiet dark rooms. So that's what I did. Wow. And, um, yeah, actually you, um, you had a quite a, a close race with Joe Fejes. Well, it, it, Fiji's, yeah, it, it looked like a close race. I mean, I, he ran 532 and I ran 530 um, miles, but um, he was in control for the last two, three days. Once, you know, both of us fell off of our pacing goals. Um, 
but he had a lot more in reserve than I did. Once he realized he wasn't going to run, you know, 600 plus, he just dialed it back to where he was staying ahead of me and did what he had to do to stay ahead of me for the rest of the race. At least I, I'm pretty sure that's, that's what he says. And that seems consistent to me. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. And it, he's, he's really the master at, at six day. He's done, he's done a bunch of them and he's won every one and he has overall American record. And, um, yeah, that's, that's his, uh, I went into it thinking I, honestly, I was, I was going to knock him off. You know, I, I, <laughs> um, I thought it was unlikely that I would, you know, break his American record, but I thought it was very likely that I would break his age group record by 551 miles and that I would beat him. Um, cause I'd run, you know, I, I had started racing Joe right when I turned 50 and I've raced him several times and, um, Generally, I've, I've come out on top, but um, this is the first time I had raced him at six days, and that was a whole new thing. That's that's his world, and I was not only brand new to it, but uh, I'm not I, I'm not as you know nearly the six day natural as, as Joe is. Bob, do you, do you think the um, you know the impact of uh, you know the training and the impact of running six days, um, you know, is it sort of uh, counter beneficial for events like Spartathlon? Do you have to sort of unpick yourself after those, or do you can you take a lot out of it? Uh, beneficial for uh, for an event like Spartathlon? Well, I don't know. I mean, the the, the physical recovery uh, is huge. Yeah. And um, I didn't run Spartathlon last year. Actually, I, I didn't sign up for Spartathlon because I was thinking I was going to be a 24-hour world, and I wound up not making the, the world's team. But as it was, I wouldn't, it, you know, I ran the dome race in July, and uh, I would not have been ready by any means for Spartathlon. It was, um, you know, I may still not be completely recovered from the dome race. It's just so physically uh, and mentally um, abusive. Nonetheless, um, you know, I think next time I run Spartathlon, yeah, I think that will be a help. It's it's just, um, it puts it more into context. If I can run 530 miles, of course I can run 153 miles. You know, the more long races you run, the more that gets into your comfort zone. Yeah. I think. Do you, do you, do you dream of going longer, Bob? I mean, would you fancy running across America or the 3,100 you know, and a tennis You know, I, I, I haven't thought about any of that seriously. I, I wouldn't have thought about six days seriously until I ran my first 48 hour. And then afterwards, Joe came up to me and, <laughs> and told me, Oh, you can break my, you can break my record to come do this. And, you know, silly me for listening to him <laughs> um, because, you know, it, before that, when I thought about six day, I thought that's, that's just a crazy format. You know, 24 hours is one thing, but six days to take that out of your life for one race and, and not just that, but your family and your crew and, um, you know, that cumulative sleep deprivation, that can't be a good thing. Um, and maybe it's not, I don't know, but no, so far I have, I have no desire to run across the country or do, um, 3,100 or anything like that. Maybe that'll change at some point. I don't know. Just need someone to whisper in your ear, Bob, by the sounds of things. <laughs> well, you know what we, you talked about ego and, um, you know, honestly, one of the things that gets me out there and doing the, the, the training to run these races is, uh, records, you know, and now that I'm over 50, um, you know, a lot of those records I've, I've been fortunate to be able to hit and I'm about to turn 55 and I have a whole bunch of new records to go after. And six day is, um, 
one of those things where, you know, I have an outside shot at an overall American record. And that's, that's very motivating because right now I just have, I have a handful of age group American records. I don't have any age group world records or overall anything, but you know, six day is kind of where my, my, um, you know, focus lies right now in terms of records because, um, Six day or, four, or maybe 48 hours would be the only things that would have any shot at all at an overall American record. And probably it's a better shot at six day. But uh, I don't know when I'm going to get that shot, but now that everything is getting canceled and, and pushed back. So. Mm. What's, the, what's the American age record for 24 hour for over 55? Um, I forget. It's, it's uh, under 140, I think. So I'm uh, expecting okay. yeah, that, expect that, that, one, then. that will be. Yeah, I'm planning on desert solstice in December, and I would, I the age group world record is uh, just short of 160, I think. And 160 has always been a dream goal for me at 24 hour. I, I mean, 154 is, is all I've run, so I would have to have some big improvement. But um, like I said, for Spartathlon, I'm changing up my training and my pacing, and um, maybe something good will happen. We'll we'll see. But yeah, yeah I'm optimistic. Um, certainly, I would I would expect the age group. 24-hour record and 100-mile and possibly the the world's age group 100-mile. I forget what that is, but I think, yeah, anyway, I'd have to look at the numbers again. But yeah, once I turn 55, there'll be a whole batch of new records. But I'm going to miss my shot at the at the 50 to 54 six-day, I fear. <laughs> yeah, that's, un, that's unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. Bob, is yeah. there, as, uh, as we... As we get a little bit older, <laughs> who 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 are who are the kind of the U.S. young guns? Who, who you know who who do you think in the future could be taking the kind of U.S. twenty-four hour and you know breaking kind of Western states and Spartathlon records? Um, Western states and Spartathlon. Well, I don't see anybody catching Walmsley anytime in the near future for Western states. I think um, Walmsley Spart could uh, come out to Spartathlon. If he were interested, um, maybe, you know, it's, it's a big leap from hundred miles to, you know, 24 hour or Spartathlon. And you've seen a lot of guys, a lot of top 24 hour, a lot of top hundred mile guys try to make the jump to 24 hour. And it just seems like it's a totally different world. Yeah. Um, but now and then, you know, like take Camille Heron, who was, you know, um, her strength was hundred K and then, you know, she's telling people she's going to run uh, her, her first hundred mile finish and break the world record by an hour. And it's like, yeah, okay. You don't realize that a hundred miles is such a different thing. You know, when you're on your feet for that much, it's a totally different world. And then she goes and she does it. <laughs> and then she's like, Oh, I'm going to run 20, I'm going to run um, 24 hours and break the world record. Okay. You don't understand the difference between a hundred miles and 24 hours. And then she does that. So you never know what, what's going to happen. But, um, I do think that as a general statement, 24 hours sparse slash Spartathlon is a very different thing than hundred miles being on your feet for that long. Um, you know, the cumulative muscle damage comes much more into play and it's not, you know, it's much less about VO2 max and aerobic fitness. I mean, all that is there, but uh, there's so much more that, that comes into it. And then the mental side of it, um, I think is, is very different as well. So, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, Zach, um, he had, Zach Bitter ran it last year and had some, um, I think he had food poisoning is what happened uh, and, and his wife both, which was really unfortunate. So I'd love to see him go back and, and see what he could do. Mm. Um, Pete Kostelnik is, is 
signed up to run this year and in principle, you know, he could run a really outstanding race. Um, Walmsley, I haven't heard if he's had ever had any interest in going longer than 100. That would be great, you know, if he could step up and, and we could see what he could do. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess uh, Jurek, Jurek still holds the uh, the top time yep. outside of Kuros, I think. Doesn't he? Oh, actually, no. I think no, Sor- um, Sorokin got Sor- in there. Sor- right? Sorokin beat it, yeah. 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 But Jurek has the top top three American times, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just to maybe maybe finish, um, I think no no ultra running podcast would be worthy of its name without mentioning Yanis Kuros. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, how do you kind of see? Yeah, you, you've you've taken part in you know lots of simply the same kind of formats of events that that Kuros dominated. I mean, how yeah. do you kind of see him as a as a runner compared to? what we have now and the, the records that he has i mean the... oh he's in a totally different world yeah we're we're never gonna see um you know Kuros when he ran his 24-hour record he said it's a mark that will stand for centuries and it, it it might well um certainly i don't see anyone with any shot of breaking his um spartathlon records it, it's just it's they're on another planet his six-day record is probably the softest record and i think that one uh, I'm surprised, actually, that it hasn't fallen yet, and I expect that it likely will within another five, ten years. But um, right. but uh, that was not his his strength, um, and I don't think he, uh, you know, Kuros has said, you know, his his record is I think what a thousand forty three kilometers or so. I think of it in miles, I forget, but it's something like that. Um, and he says, you know, a good runner should be able to do twelve hundred kilometers, and um, <laughs> and uh, so we'll see. But you know. Kuros in his prime, if he had optimal conditions and optimal pacing, I think could have done much better. And in fact, he did do better than his six-day world record in, in non-six-day races. As, um, oh, really? One of his one of his point-to-point races in Australia, um, he, he he split um, a faster faster mark than that. So um, it just the stars never really lined up for him at six-day. I think even though even though he does have the world record. Wow. Um. When are you going to come over here, Bob? We've got some uh, really long races on canals yeah. that you might like. I know, I know. I remember my my friend who first got me interested in Spartathlon. She qualified for Spartathlon at a at GUCR. Oh, really? Um, yeah. She sure. she did didn't wind up getting into Spartathlon, unfortunately, and now she's kind of moved away from running. But oh, okay, yeah. well, wow, but she came to run GUCR. Huh? Yep. Yeah. Uh, scenic. It's very scenic. Is it? It's it's actually okay. not. I'm, I'm sure if you're. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not scenic. Yeah. It is a special no, race. Yeah, I, it's I, a special I race. Would love to. Yeah. Bob, we're aware that we've taken up almost an hour of your life already for us. David, any more um, any more things for Bob? Do you think? Oh, I mean, um, Bob. I think you know, with all the kind of craziness that's going on in the world, you know, running sometimes takes a bit of a quite right back, back yeah. seat, doesn't it, buddy? But um, yeah. it's, always, it's always a, you know, a massive pleasure to meet up with you, buddy. And if it happens to be Spartathlon uh, later this year, then uh, it will definitely be something special indeed. So, uh, yeah, I hope, it, I hope it happens, buddy. But if not in Spartathlon, yeah. then we'll definitely look forward to seeing you sometime, somewhere soon, Bob. Yeah, well, I, I certainly look forward to hopefully see you guys there. Yeah. And, um, yeah. 
Absolutely. Are, are you, uh, are you in need of a, a lift to uh, Acropolis? <laughs> you don't like the, you don't like the buses, right? No, I don't like the. That's the one thing I don't like about Spartathlon is the buses. So yeah, yeah uh, we'll we'll see. Who's yeah. crewing for you this year, Bob? Uh, I don't know. My my friend Scott, who um, you helped you helped him crew last time, um, has had expressed interest. He actually was going to go crew for me in Hungary, um, but at this point, um, yeah, who knows? No, I, I did it in 20, 2016 without a crew, and it's it's you know it's doable without a crew. The crew certainly certainly helps and makes things go more smoothly. Yeah. yeah <laughs> nice one, Bob. Excellent. Well, Bob, thank you so much. We really appreciate that.